Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of the Book Ride podcast is brought to you by Madison Reed. If you're looking to freshen up your hairstyle before Valentine's Day, but don't have time to make it to the salon or wait for the next available appointment, never fear. Madison Reed offers salon-quality hair color from the convenience of your home at a fraction of the price. With premium ingredients and expert assistance, Madison Reed has everything you need to color your hair at home with confidence. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. That's the dash, the punctuation mark, don't spell out dash. Madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use offer code BOOKRIOT. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 195. We're recording on Monday, February 6th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebanda Nelson. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. It's been a long, torturous road to get us to record even late. We're oh late my gosh. And we're still here. People are texting the Book Riot account or tweeting at it, like, where's the podcast? I'm like, we haven't even I know, done I it I know, yet. we haven't even done it. And, and listen, last week we were late as well for reasons. Oh, I had stomach flu last week and I couldn't get mm-hmm. the show posted. This week uh, there was a snow day here. Uh, uh, Rebecca's uh, was off skiing and she's recuperating, coming back in the office today. And then Amanda's kids got sick. So it's been, it's been a horrible mess. So trust me. Our lives have been worse than yours <laughs> over the so last... Sorry. Well, I should, I'm sure some of you had a crappier week than that, but we're delayed for good reasons. Uh, I, I, As a podcast listener myself, I am attuned to the uh, the habitual form of like you expect on a certain day, and if it's like 24 hours late, it's like, oh my God, why are they doing this to me? Um, but anyway, Amanda, uh, welcome back to the show. It's been a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Good to be back. What's new in the book right world we should tell people about? Anything we should, we should, we should hit them up with? Uh, there's some stuff on sale. There's, oh, yeah, there's a big sale. Yeah, can you can go check that out, too. Um, the hoodies are 25% off. Uh, I saw... Yeah, and there's a new one, that, the iLift Hardcovers hoodie, which is great. It has a barbell with, like, books on the end instead of weights. It's very clever. You can go check that out. Um, and let's see. Oh, I, I don't know if you also check out... Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. We're doing in February uh, sort of an Instagram challenge. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Which Kelly's is, brainchild. The hashtag is Riotgrams if you're on... Uh, Instagram and or Twitter, you can find it there. But, you know, every day there's a different challenge, a bookish-related picture to take. So, you know, it's February, a shorter month, but also I think we can all use a little distraction or a little more, yeah. you know, community building. Um, so. It's fun. I think today's thing is a, a book or a character, a book with an author name or character name that is your first name. And I can't oh. think of a single one for Amanda. Like, I don't hmm. – maybe I need to go search some, like, R.L. Stein books from the 80s. Yeah, I was going to say it's much more it. recent, right? You have yeah. To be. Um, I can't think of a Jeff off the top of my head either. Again, I'm mostly villains from 80s uh, mo- um, movies. <laughs> you know, you know, I got a sweater no, tied around. You could Eugenides. Oh, it's author? I thought it was character. I was thinking of character. Oh, it's either. I'm sorry. Oh, it's either. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Jeffrey Eugenides. That's not bad. Um, that's pretty good. Uh, all right. Let's get to our first sponsor before we get into the, the week of news. It's Casper is back. I don't know about you, but anything that can help me sleep a little bit better right now, I'm interested in. I, I'm just I'm just putting that out there right now. And Casper, that's what it is. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. 
It's got this supportive memory foam that creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink, just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. So there's a couple things that are annoying about buying a mattress. Like if you go into a regular store or mattress store, where it's, you know, basically it's like uh, sleep coffins. They're all like you know laying around. It's kind of eerie and creepy. All these empty mattresses. But there's a couple things that are annoying. One is you've got so many choices, right? Are you going to get this kind of top, that kind of top, this kind of spring, blah blah blah, and then you got to get it home. You got to get your old mattress out of there, and that's and that's assuming you like it. And if you don't like it, it's a horrible mess. You got to go take it back and get it in a flatbed truck, and you have to a- ask your one friend that has a pickup truck. How is it possible that we all have like the one friend that has a pickup truck that gets um, asked to do everything? <laughs> also, never buy a pickup truck because then you'll ask you'll get asked to do everything all the time, like take crappy mattresses back. With Casper, they realized okay. It's annoying enough to have to get a new mattress. So let's keep our choices to a couple things. One, there's, there's really only one, and that is what size. Because they have the same memory foam. It's like, this is the best one for most people are going to be super happy with this, so we're going to go with this. So you have to think about and decide what and blah. And the other thing is the getting it to your house, and should you not like it out of your house, they figured it out. You get a 100-night risk-free in-home trial. And if you don't love it, They'll pick it up and refund you everything. So, you know, you can get in there. I've had this happen with a mattress before I bought, and I sleep on it for a few nights. Like, this was a horrible mistake. How did this happen? <laughs> and you're, you're like mattress jail because you can't get it out of there. It's a horrible mess. And so you're stuck sleeping on a bad mattress for like 12 years. Uh, I might be speaking from experience myself. I'm just putting it out there. So they understand the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially you're going to spend a third of your life on it. And that, that's assuming you don't have young kids. And that's more like, you know, a fifth of your life. Mm. Free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada. And you can get 50 bucks toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash bookriot and using offer code bookriot. It's casper, C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash bookriot. Go get yourself a new mattress. Sleep a, bo- sleep a little bit better and uh, make it easy for you to get that annoying floppity thing out of your house and a new one in there. Okay. Well, this is something I've been I've been wondering about for a long time. Are you a Dune fan? Have you read Dune? I've read all of them. You've done all Oh, you've done all of them. I think maybe we've talked about this before actually now that you say that. And the original well, the 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 extant adaptation of Dune um with Kyle MacLachlan as uh, Atreides is I mean, so it's bad. an it's an interesting train wreck. But you're you're not gonna you know really want to watch it's it's not it's not objectively good and entertaining, and it's a huge franchise and probably the largest franchise out there in sci-fi, maybe Asimov's Foundation series. I'm not we we could debate about that, but it's certainly one that doesn't have a good multi-installment um, ad- adaptation out there. And we have very interesting news in that director Dennis Villanueva, who directed Arrival and Sicario is officially signed up to direct uh, a Dune reboot, I guess is what we're calling it. Um, Brian Herbert, the son of Frank, who wrote the original novel, confirmed it. So there we go. Um, Both TV and Phil rights to Dune, so I don't know if there might be some sort of ancillary thing that goes along with the movies. That seemed to be something that's happening these days. But there there we is. What what, what do you think about that? Are you excited? Are you interested? Does the director matter to you? What are your thoughts and feelings? Yeah, I'm excited about it. I feel like there was another one after the Kyle MacLachlan one, though. Wasn't there like a TV Dune with uh, Susan Sarandon? What? Yeah. Uh, if, if there is, I've never heard of it. 
and I'm going like to immediately true. Google that after we're done doing that. That Susan Sarandon was that was his mother. Huh. I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, we'll, we'll find out. Um, if there is, I'll put a link in the show notes after we're done. I'm not going to click Okay. I definitely it. remember a more recent one because hmm. um, I owned it like on DVD like a goober. I know. It was more recent than 1984, huh. but it must have been on TV because this article in The Verge is talking about how that was the last adaptation on film. Oh, on film. Was the one in 84, oh. but... I, th- I think it was the, on the Sci-Fi Channel or something like that. Anyway, Weird. I distinctly remember watching. Okay. Um, but yeah, I haven't seen Arrival or Sicario, so I don't know anything about this director. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am here for a new version of it because there hasn't been one. I don't think that's like done it any sort of justice or that's yeah good. good. <laughs> um, I haven't seen Arrival or Sicario either, though they're both very well regarded. Um, mm-hmm. I have them. Well, Arrival comes out actually, I think, on DVD next week, which I'm very excited to see. Which is, I, some of you may know, based on um, a short story by Ted Chiang, um, and I can't remember the name of the collection it comes from. So also, Villanueva has some uh, adaptation experience, taking some take a short story and making it into a movie. Now he's got to do the other thing: is take a whole bunch of books and try to figure out how to make them into into. Uh, I guess you just do one. Well. I'm glad Peter Jackson did this because we get 50 Dune, no- uh, 50 Dune movies, right? For however, however how many mm-hmm. books they are. Like, that's uh, Peter Jackson algebra. I'm um, very interested to see this. There's six, right? I don't know. And then some of them, and aren't there ones that's kind of like a, a Michael Shara situation where you've yeah. got like the sun does some and then there's some other things and some, I don't know. I, I lost track of like the first three. I was like, yeah, I think I'm done. It's enough I'm pretty spice sure there are six that he wrote and then there are more that his kid yeah, wrote right i didn't read any of those no I, I didn't i didn't when when the when the offspring picks up the mantle i'm out yeah yeah i'm, I'm out. not i'm out I, I do wonder if this is one of those situations where some cgi you know where maybe we're at a point where some cgi you can do the worms and everything that make it look yeah i feel better. like it's a hard one to adapt both because of the you know it's a movie about giant worms yeah and also it's got like really kind of strange religious stuff going on and like sand people who live in a very (laughs) visually unappealing landscape and like really in like what like intricate political machinations it feels very game of thrones but on yeah space. i was trying to think of like some kind of how, how do you get to the dna of dune it's like star wars plus like Political intrigue plus like Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, somehow. yeah, like weird ecological yeah. stuff. And- like the novel is so dense and sprawling and big mm-hmm. that to to pare it down to film and be able to do it with any, I don't know, that makes any kind of sense. You really got to cut away a lot of stuff. Which I think is tough. I mean, one one thing you go back and look at Star Wars now, the original one. Um, you know, Lucas was building what he could do and could imagine with film there, and it's really pretty small movie. You know, it starts out small. The kernel is, you know, a few characters, just a couple locations, and it really builds out into a much bigger film and a franchise now. Whereas Dune, it's this whole, it's like this cheesecake yes. factory of people. <laughs> you know, like you look at the cheesecake factory menu and all this stuff on it. That's why I feel like Dune is like there's all this stuff, and how do you figure out? Um, what yeah, to I do feel like it's it. a it's way more comparable to Game of Thrones than it is to Star Wars. Yeah. like in the the the, the width of it. Or- right. Right. Well, at least with Game of Thrones, like, you know, there's not too much CGI, right? It's like, you know, we, we mm. know how to do that stuff. I mean, there's dragons and stuff. Well, there's like, the dragons. But I guess the worms would be whatever. Yeah, I guess so. But the whole thing doesn't have to you know, like it's it's mostly in the forest with people wearing tunics, you know, like we, yeah. we know how to make those kind of movies. Um, so and I'd imagine to get it right, it's going to be one of those $150, 200000000 budgets. Like it's going to be a big 
a big movie. Um, and this is Legendary Pictures. And I'm trying to think. I think they did. Uh, no, that was Lionsgate. Pardon me. That did uh, uh, The Hunger Games. So that's probably. I mean, the other ones, like I say, that are out there, they tried to do the Ender's Game thing, get that mm. off the ground. And that movie yeah. was okay. Did you see that? No. The most recent no. one? It was okay. I'm not giving dollars to yeah, I can Scott understand. Cards yeah, estate. I understand. Um, it was okay, but it wasn't. It didn't do well enough to like get them to make any more. The Foundation trilogy, I guess, like the Red Mars stuff in Sci-Fi Land. Um, but anyway, an auspicious beginning, and um, it couldn't be in better hands, as far as I can tell, from a directorial point of view. Um, but as the as they say, the um, the proof is in the the proof of the put- pudding mm-hmm. is in the eating. So we'll see how this really turns out here. I really want it to be like Mad Max on a rockus. Like that's, that's yes. what I want this to be. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like an explicit, you know, drugs and everything going in there too. Um, speaking of. I don't know. I put this in here. I'm not really sure what to say about it. Um, weird. It's, it's weird. just strange. Also, it made me think about how there's not. This is this is the Franklin School in downtown Washington D.C. This is an old building. It's been um, vacant since 2008, uh, but the city itself abandoned the buildings earlier, and it's getting turned basically into um, a museum of linguistics. Mm-hmm. Which is weird, right? What? Yeah. Um, because linguistics, as far as I know, I've had one introductory linguistics class, which I really found interesting. But it seems to me to have very inter- hard to have interesting exhibits about where about interdental fricatives, you know, and like sibilance <laughs> and stuff like that. I don't really understand how it's going to work. Um, so they've already raised three million dollars towards a fifteen million dollar goal. But as we know, with museums, that's that's chicken's feed. I, I don't. They're going to need a whole bunch more than that. Um, it's really kind of weird. Uh, on the Planet Word site, that well, I'll put the link in the show notes. The this, the description is something like this: invites future visitors to identify accents, tell us how you say soda and hoagie, learn tips from professional dialect coaches, and climb a tower of Babel, or run through a tunnel of prepositional phrases. Um, which to me sounds like a really weird dream I had when I was sick one time. Um, a tunnel of prepositional phrases. Uh, it's very, very strange. It, unlike anything else in D.C. or really anywhere. Um, I'm not sure, but this has just made me think about how we really could use, like, in D.C. or elsewhere, like a Museum of American Literature or something like that. I guess, you know, it's the Smithsonian has this, and it's kind of balkanized into individual museums and writers' houses and libraries and things like that. But wouldn't it be cool to have, like, you know, somewhere on the mall or somewhere in D.C., a museum of – American literature makes sense in D.C., but, like, is there a museum of, like, literature in the world anywhere? Yeah, well, there's the British – in the British Library, they have, like, Austin's Desk and the Gutenberg Bible and just, like – Right. I guess the British Library is the closest thing, Right. Um, and then, of course, the British Museum has like the Rosetta Stone. It's you know, there's, mm-hmm. and that's, I'm not sure you'd really call that a literary document as much a historical one or a philological one. But especially in America, like uh, of all the things to get uh, money behind, the linguistics museum seems super weird. Super weird. I, I'm not really sure what else to say about this. But what's the best? Um, I was going to ask you, what's the best uh, literary tourism thing you've done? Liter. Oh. Um. Oh. That's tough. I, I've, 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 got, I've got nothing. I can't. I can't give you anything. I'm wondering if you had a good one. The Edgar Allan Poe Museum here is pretty good. 
It's in Rich. Um, oh, right in Richmond. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's his old house. It's um, down, by the, it's wa- actually, down by the river. Yeah. It's the oldest standing building in the city still. Um, it was built in like the 16th century and um, it's like tiny and creepy and weird. And they have like locks of his hair <laughs> and like the shroud he was wearing mm-hmm. whenever when he like recovered from some illness. It's the most random collection of stuff from a person's life. Mm-hmm. Um but it seems appropriate, like it does, macabre yeah. and and just it's sort of random and. Freaky. They have an unhappy hour, so you <laughs> yes. can go and like drink in the courtyard yeah. and be sad. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I've been to the British Museum. I've been to the British. Museum. I guess when I went to see the Globe Theater, the you know the rebuilt one, that was pretty cool. Um, Westminster Abbey's pretty cool, but it's like there's just some buried authors and like this huge church. Like it's kind <laughs> of like I don't know. It feels a, like a footnote. Excuse the the pun because you like walk over their graves. Um, but I, I, I heard rumor that you might be going to see um, the remains of the great Miguel at some point. Yes, Is that true? I am. I'm going to Spain at the end of the month, and yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to Madrid. And like the only thing that I have on my list, aside from like eat all the tapas, yes. Is- Go to the cathedral, well, not cathedral, it's like a convent where he mm-hmm. is supposedly buried, but there's no, like, confirmation. And during getting in there is impossible because they only, le- the nuns will only let you in right after mass. So you have to, like, go to mass. Mm. That's how <laughs> and I'm get not you. Catholic, That's so I have no you. idea. Mass in Spanish. Like, I don't speak either of those languages. I don't speak, you know. Mass? You don't I, speak I, Catholic? I don't speak Catholic. I do speak a little bit of Spanish, but, like, I'm not going to follow any of that. And then they will, like, usher you to the crypt where he may or may not be buried with 15 other people in a giant pile. So, but I'm going. We're going to see. I think we did a story. Or we we covered that um, on the podcast a while ago. <laughs> yeah, like, there was, like, did. a pile of bones. Like, yeah, this might be Cervantes' thumb, we think, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. But there's also, um, there's a bar, a really old um, like Art Deco mm. bar in Madrid where Hemingway used to hang out and apparently you can go and like sit in his booth. So I'm yeah. going to do that. You know, you can't swing a dead cat in Europe without hitting a bar Hemingway used to sit at. That is super true. And yeah. I would love to sit in all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good time to me. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty funny. So the Museum of Linguistics uh, coming soon. Uh, did you, have you ever been to the Folger Shakespeare Library in DC? I have not. That's one thing I'd want to I want to go to, and it's not open all the time. Like it's a closed library. Um, I actually read a book a couple weeks ago about the making of the Folger Shakespeare Library. Library, believe it or not, that's how boring I am. Um, but it sounds really interesting. Did you know that Folger, the Folger Shakespeare Library, has a full forty two percent of the extant first folios? He has eighty two of them. It's wow, insane! It's an insane collection. Um, Anyway, so there's the weird museum of linguistics. Um, speaking of uh, literary arcana, it's literary arcana week here on the show. I guess when you're, it's, it's appropriate when you're on the show that we do like super nerdy stuff that no one else cares about. <laughs> Just us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I looked up how to say this guy's name, and I didn't find any help. So I'm, I'm going to just try from what I see. Um, but Zhu Yuyang um, died a couple weeks ago. Uh, almost a month ago now, January 13th, 2017. He was 111 years old. And here's what nice. he did. He led the charge to create a Roman alphabet for Chinese. Um, basically, he was charged by the the you know, the political leadership of China of finding a way to translate translate the ideograms of written Chinese into a modern um, alphabet uh, where they could actually, you know, write it in a more really speed, right? That, that's like a standardized, kind of, you know, standardized, yeah. a standardized way. Um, so there's a couple things. It's a, it's a fascinating story. There was a long profile in the New York Times that really only scratched the surface of what this would kind of take to do. 
Um, but one thing you can say about an authoritarian regime, if you need to do something really crazy, huge, and improbable, <laughs> like rewriting your written language, this is they get the done, they get it done um, in that particular way. Um, so just a couple of things that come up when you think about. So probably most of you know that Chinese is ideograms, which are, are basically like remnants or not remnants, but um, they've they've evolved from really graphical representations of what they're trying to describe into you know s- symbols for those things. But y- you have to be able to see them to understand what they are. And one thing that's nice about that is if you speak different dialects of Chinese, even if you couldn't understand each other talking to each other, the written language was all the same. So it had that it had that going for it. But if you're doing things like trying to develop a keyboard, for example, it's <laughs> super hard to have tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of diagrams readily available to you. Also very difficult for um, non-native speakers to learn. Uh, famously very difficult to learn Chinese if, if before there was a Roman alphabet. But also even things like accessibility, if you're blind you have a really tough time because the Braille system uses, you know, the nice thing about um, an alphabet is it's combinatorial, right? So you only need a handful of discrete symbols, but in combinations and um, and in combinations you can create, you know, because of math, almost virtual, uh, virtually unlimited number of uh, combinations that can be a bunch of different words. So really interesting guy. He also was a political dissident. Um, I love all of For like the last 50, I mean, the thing that's crazy is he started this project in looks like 1958, and he was already 50 years old, you know, so like <laughs> he had a long life, and he's not as well known in China that than he could be. Like, it's kind of amazing, right? Like, it, it's, it feels like something would happen in the ancient world. Like, some guy's like, you know, we're going to make a written language out of this. Like, what? It's crazy. <laughs> um, but he was, his play, his historical place was downplayed because of his uh, political dissident. Um, to the the Chinese government, he w- wasn't a linguist by training. He, training, he was a banker and he had some international experience. So, I, it's not really clear to me how he got the job. They kind of gloss over it in this profile, but it seemed worth noting the passing of someone who did something sort of unprecedented. Like it, it seems to me it's something on the order of like the, writing the Oxford English Dictionary to take on a project uh, of such magnitude. Here, anything else in this story you wanted to, to that you thought was interesting? He wrote more than 40 books. That's amazing. That is Ten amazing. Of them were published after he turned 100. That's so good. It's never too late. <laughs> it's never too In late. In all honesty, right? I haven't got anything good to say about yeah. Mao Zedong. Yeah. <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> it gives you know, me a lot of hope, actually, because, like, at the top of the profile, they're talking about an interview he did in 2012 with the BBC where he was like, Yes, I am. You know, I'm a dissident or whatever. What are they going to do? Lock me up? You know, and he's right. like 110. And so I, I have hope for when I'm. Like yeah. quite old, and I'm, I'm no longer worried about being arrested. <laughs> yeah, like, right. What are you ulti- what are you this do? is like your ultimate, like your grandma don't care moment, yes. right? Yeah. I've survived 60 years of authoritarian regimes. I invented written Chinese, as you know it, and I'm going to yeah. say some stuff about Mao. What do you want from me? <laughs> yeah. In, in terms of the impact, um, again, in, almost incalculable to to estimate, except that there's a couple numbers that I thought were extremely striking. Um, as you might imagine. Chinese was learned by most Chinese people orally, right? The easiest way to learn it that way, um, as most kids are. But in terms of literacy, it's very hard to teach. And as a result, illiteracy remained rampant throughout China well into the 20th centuries, affecting by some estimates as much as 85% of the population. Um, And the literacy rates rose dramatically, quickly. I mean, they instituted this on one specific day, right? February 11th, 1958, 
that that's to the day. Like that's crazy to me that all of a sudden you just had it written a different written language uh, than you did before. Um, anyway, there you go. So that's um, someone that's worth noting. It's like that. This is a, the kind of thing that happens. This a guy was alive in our lifetime. Well, I think at some time will seem weird. Uh, yeah. So that's. Wanted to pass that along. I thought you guys might be interested in that. All right, let's go to more standard sort of book riot podcast kind of news. One book, mm. uh, one New York. You want to take a stab at this one? You want to tell people what's going on with this? Yeah, sure. So there is a initiative, I guess, that the New York City Mayor's Office is doing um, with Commissioner. It's called One Book, One New York, which is an initiative to get everyone in the city reading the same book at the same time. But they haven't picked it. They've picked five books for New Yorkers to choose from. So you can go to this article on BuzzFeed, which we will link to, to see some celebrities explaining why they think you should pick XYZ. So the five books they've got, uh, Between the World and Me, The Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Americana uh, by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, uh, The Sellout, which was a huge book last year by Paul Beatty, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, everybody knows that, and The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde by Juno Diaz. I'm not sure how you... Oh, here you go. To vote for your favorite book... You have to just go to the site for the thing. You can follow the hashtag. Um, Interesting picks. Yeah, good picks. Not a lot of surprises. No. in Brooklyn's a little surprising. That's kind of an old... It's so surprising. I guess it's surprising because the rest of the picks feel... I mean, they're more contemporary by decades, right? Um, I don't know. Have you ever done one of these city-long read-along things? Uh I always wonder how effective these are. Because you see, like, Chicago does one, I think, and other cities Mm -hmm. do them. Um, Right now in Portland, the Multnomah County Library System is... um, they're trying to lead a discussion or whatever, you know, once you read a, a book called Evicted that's about affordable housing and um, housing policy. This is something that comes up from time to time. I think it's cool. I'm just never sure what, like, what the, what's the point of it? Uh, like, what, well, what are they trying to do exactly? I get what they're trying to do. I get that they're trying to have a conver- like a unifying conversation <laughs> about something across the city. Um, but the cities that, the places that do these sorts of things in Portland, New York, Chicago, it's are the places that, in my mind, are in least need mm. of having these kind of conversations. Like, does New York really need to talk about Between the World and Me? Like, I mean, obviously, there's police brutality stuff happening in New York and all that. But I feel like maybe, I don't know, like a, if a city in rural Idaho did one mm. city, one Idaho, whatever, and picked Between the World and Me, I think that would be a more interesting. Or like Missoula, Montana, Red, Missoula. Missoula, yeah, right, right, yeah. yeah. Like huh. if 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 I felt like this moved any kind of needle, I I think I would find it more. So it's sort of almost like a preaching to the choir doing. situation yeah, for you a little yeah. bit. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Maybe too. not. I don't. Right. I don't live in New York, so the kind of places that can get up enough steam to do something like this means there's steam there to get up to right, do it. Right. right? Um, I guess I'm. I'm just not sure. Like, there's going to be conversations where on Twitter. Like, what? I let's, guess. Let's, let's say I was still living in New York and I decided I'm going to read the. You know, I'm going to pick the sellout and like read it along. I just, I'm just not sure. I guess, to me, it's like, I guess, and and I don't mean this pejoratively. It's glorified book recommendations, right? I mean, yeah. which is fine, which is fine. Um, this is just a heck of an effort. Like you've got Larry Wilmore and William H Macy and BB Newworth, like making videos and talk, like a lot of effort that went into this. Um, I'm just not sure. I think I would what, have what to look do. at the other ones. Like I know Chicago has yeah. done theirs for a while. I'd like to see their numbers, but they've got like Oprah, you know. So yeah, and it's all literary. I mean, also it's literary fiction and and nonfiction. I don't know. I, there's just something about this that again, it's not bad. I'm just a little. I, I, I've seen these before. I leave myself scratching my head. But this is the biggest initiative I've ever seen of this kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I can, as, as Buzzfeed's behind it, they seem to be. Um, I don't know some kind of media partner for it. 
um, and you have the celebrity stuff and the dedicated site. And I just don't know, like, I guess you do it and then you think that, yeah, that was good. I'm just not sure. Yeah. I'm sure sure they have, I mean, this is just what I would do, but I'm sure they have like meeting, maybe meeting meetups at the library. Meetups. You can go talk about it. Yeah, maybe. Have the authors come in, do a thing. Something like that? uh, Just, I'm not sure. Watching celebrities pitch a book, like, again, I guess I'm just not, I just don't (laughs) care about that. So maybe the wrong Well, we could talk about that. We've got a thing about the celebrity book club thing. Yeah, let's go to that. I find that much more interesting, I have to say. Okay, do you? Wait, well, I don't know. Okay, you tell tell me what that is then. All right, all right. So Kim Kardashian, who is, I did not know this, but who is best friends with Chrissy Teigen, Uh are starting a book club. Right. On Twitter. Or I don't know if the book club is happening on Twitter, but they announced it on Twitter. Um, that they're starting a book club. And the first book that they're reading is Embraced by the Light by Betty J. Edie. I don't know how you say it. Yeah, yeah I don't know. E-A-D-I-E. I don't know, which um, is a strange, weird pick in my brain. I mean, it's a bestseller. It was published in the early 90s. It's yeah. about the author's near-death experience. Like, it seems like one of those, whatever, those, like, I almost died and saw heaven and came back to life, and here's my hallucination that I'm presenting to you as fact kind of a thing. Right. That is, like, super popular. So they're reading that, and it seems like they're doing most of the talking about it on social media. Kim has talked about it on Snapchat a little bit. Chrissy has tweeted about it. Um, So, like, this is, like, a thing that's happening now, I think. Like, Emma Watson started a book club. Yeah. Andrew Luck, we talked about here, the yeah. book club before. I guess that's the thing that's interesting to me about it is like that that the idea of a book club is something that people, even at the height of celebrity fame exposure, like are interested in doing. You know, even you know who has more possible social engagements than Kim Kardashian? Yeah, than a Kardashian. Yeah, and and yet still there's something about. And I, I tried to f- I watched a little bit, and the ex- the explanation of why they're doing it is not really out there. Except it seems like they want to. Yeah. <laughs> um, the pick itself is is interesting, I guess. Um, there's no like, I mean, philosophy or why they're trying to do it. They just want to do it, which I think is really super interesting. Just that, like, I don't know that a book club I mean, is been- the idea of a book club is so compelling that they'll they'll do it. That they'll just want to do it. And what does that mean to them to have a book club on social media? Like. They're going to talk about it. They're going to post about yeah, it. I mean, there's no know. right way to do it. I just find the whole thing fascinating as an experiment. Because um, we talked before on the show about, you know, op- the Oprah's book club and mm-hmm. that the the power of that to sell books and get people talking about a book has declined and so, mostly by neglect, I think, because Oprah got tired of doing it or whatever. And there hasn't really been a substitute for this, you know. And I, it'd be, I, I'm sure that. I'll have to see if I can drug up some numbers, but like how many units of Embraced by the Light does this sell? Like no one has a bigger social media following than this. Yeah. No one. Like it, it's got to sell some copies, but how many? Like are they going to get paid to do any of this stuff? You know, I'm just – I'm fascinated by this I idea. would put it – I mean like that seems to be Kim Kardashian's like deal, right? It's right. Social media sponsorship. Like she does – and again, I don't follow her on anything except that I've seen a couple stories on the marketing side of she will like do a face cream ad on Snapchat or something basically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and take, I I would assume, an exorbitant amount of money. On the other hand, as as both you and I know, I can't imagine that uh, whoever published Embraced by the Light is going to give her $100,000 or whatever. I I don't even know what it it. might be to to (laughs) do it. So the motives behind it are interesting and like this thing about dying, like – 
that she's openly thinking about her mortality seems to me super interesting, right? Like, <laughs> well, she's got what, like two kids now. That's what. Well, that's what happens. These two kids, but also someone who clearly is. Um, and look, this goes back to the ancient world of people worried about their own publicity and their own way they'll be remembered and things of that nature. Um, no one seems to be playing the modern publicity. Uh, game better than uh, Kim Kardashian. So I just think this is super interesting that the first pick in this book club of these super famous, very attractive women who spend a lot of their time because it's it's part of their brand identity, keeping themselves looking young and fit and healthy and whatever. Their first book is about dying. It's just, I, I find the whole, it's almost like something out of a, a satire uh, to me, like, you know, it's something that Gary Steingart would write, like a celebrity book club where all the books are about being are about aging or being forgotten or dying or something like that. Um, I'd be curious to like a lot of these book clubs I've seen pop up that celebrities do. They get like some mention early, but then they fade away. It's I think a lot of book clubs themselves even run by non-celebrities. Let's start a book club. OK, we met twice and then it sort of goes away. Yeah. I'd be well, interested like to see how long it runs. Zuckerberg's thing is he still doing that? Like well, a- that, no, I don't think so. That was a year, and it did go for a year. Um, oh, did it? I got I like lost interest yeah, after two. We lost interest as well. Um, Rebecca and I were talking about it. like we started the picks, but then nothing else happened. He's like this this week's pick or this I think there was two a month every other week is this book, and then there'd be a bunch of spammy Facebook comments on that post, and that was it. Yeah. Um, well, and that's the thing that I find like. Not just the fact that it's Kim Kardashian, who I didn't know was a reader. I don't. Yeah. It's not like surprising to me. She seems like a smart person. Yes, but I, agree. I just like I had never heard of that in her um, like coverage in the media. Um, but also, like, how do you do a book club on Twitter? Like that, the the mechanics of this thing that seems very much like a thing they just like were sitting right. on their sofas and were like, hey, this sounds like fun. Let's, you know, and then tweeted about it. And now it's like a thing <laughs> that people are anticipating some sort of structure around. But I don't right. think there's going to be any. So like well, Emma Watson's book club is very structured and there's yes. like ways you can participate. And it's got like a point, you know, she's doing this whole like feminist intersectionality thing. And that's all on Goodreads, right? The Emma Watson's book club? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, Instagram too. And oh, I just and don't, Instagram. I don't understand how that how this is going to work but it'd be interesting to watch i don't i don't think i follow either of them um on anything but no i don't either um tegan i see her she comes up in my feed by other people's retweets and she seems funny and interesting i have to say i probably should follow her i always she just came out with a cookbook that rebecca really loves oh and it sold a jillion copies too yeah i think we may have talked about that i mean it could be as simple as they're they got together and they're like you know i want to read more books or you want to read this book with me it's like let's do a book like that's how these things happen Mm -hmm. right yeah that's how i started yeah they've got the largest uh social media platforms uh, available to them. So suddenly it's a thing. I it, find Kim Kardashian just like really fascinating kind of. So, yeah, yeah, I do too. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a hater. I mean, I'm not a fan or a hater necessarily, more of a semi-interested observer. Uh, she reminds it. me a lot of Jessica Simpson where there was that oh. same phenomenon when Jessica Simpson was famous, where it was like, everyone thinks she's dumb and she's pretty. So she must be stupid. But in reality, she's like turned a horrible situation where she became immediately famous because of a sex tape into right. this like huge multi-million dollar industry just based on how nice her lips are like that's amazing <laughs> she's brilliant right. <laughs> like she's done something right you know in the same way that jessica simpson did that whole like act about being dumb and mm. then now doesn't ever have to work again because we're all actually stupid and gave her money for it so <laughs> right well and i mean not, not to do the statistics things but there are a lot of attractive people out there 
Um, it, just because you're attractive guarantees you nothing, right? Right. Um, so something else is going on. I'm not, I'm not really sure what to make of it. It's the the thing I always think about when I when I see a story about Kim Kardashian or something else. What an exhausting life it looks to lead yes, in this way. Um, it just looks like a horror show of being prepared and accessible and trying to put content about yourself out all the time. It just seems like a horrible mess. It's hard enough, it seems to me, to get out of the door, get the kids to school, and get back in time to record a podcast, uh, what they're doing. Um, <laughs> well, she's got some help, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, it does. I, I guess the thing, I, and again, I, I don't mean to dwell over it, but I'm going to, so just bear with me for a second out there, is that what is it about the idea of a book club that people find so interesting? Like the stats about the number of people that are in book clubs are are staggering. Like a lot of people mm. are in book clubs. And especially it's it's mostly women, but also men mm-hmm. are in book clubs too. But there's something about wanting to, and I don't, I don't know what it is. I really don't understand what it, it's. You feel like you haven't been engaged enough with your life somehow. Is it the social kind of contract you make with other people that helps you? It's kind of like going to AA, right? Like, mm-hmm. but you you want to do more reading, but you need sort of a, a structure and a support system of other people doing it as well. Like the endurance of the idea of a book club in our modern age, I think, is something really interesting to wonder about. And the history of book clubs is interesting. Like it goes back to like the self-improvement societies, like Ben Franklin started one, the mutual improvement societies where you'd have to, you know, give a – you'd take – like it's related also to like the Eagles or the – the what what are the other ones? Ah, oh, golly's. Rotarians, right? Oh, you know, yeah. You come and you see a lecture and you have to ask a question and all this kind of stuff. But there's something to this uh, ad hoc – and then rarely structured way of getting together with other people from time to time to learn something that you maybe aren't doing by yourself that I find a really interesting phenomenon. And it goes up to the very height of celebrity and privilege and resources like this. It doesn't discriminate apparently Mm -hmm. um, along these lines. Well, my book club has been meeting for over a year at this Mm. point, I think. And it's, I, I would say the motivation is mostly to get out of like, the head in the sand kind of way that we can all just get in our own lives right. and not pay attention to what our friends are doing or whatever. And I mean, like to be blunt, a lot of it is about like getting away from your kids for a night mm-hmm. and drinking a glass of wine with a human being who is your age. <laughs> sure. Um, so I think that that's probably a lot of people's reasons for having a book club is just to, like get out of your house and talk to a person about a thing that is not your family or yeah. your partner or your bills or your job or whatever. Right. And as you get older, I guess, you also aren't just like looking to go to see a band at a club or something. Like it's also a replacement social experience, right? Value over replacement experience is pretty high at that point Mm because you don't have to go pay. You know, um, it's low key. You you probably, unless you're Kardashian, I guess, you don't get dressed (laughs) up necessarily if you don't want to. No, I mean, I don't mean that pejoratively. Like it's a a relatively low – it's it's, the resource requirement is pretty low to get together about it. but that, and maybe that there's so many vectors of interest. The book club does so many functions, possibly that that's why I endure so much because it's kind of a Swiss Army social event. Like it can mm-hmm. be about getting out of the house, but it's also cheap. But also, you get to read books and talk, and you know, you have something to talk about that replaces, I guess, just talking about nothing or gossiping or you know, talking mm-hmm. about the horror show of current events. Just the whole idea is fascinating to me that it's such an enduring and alluring social institution um, that Mm. we don't know very much about. Like what other things do people do regularly that we just don't have much information about, or it's, it's all done ad hoc. Like, I don't know. I find it fascinating. 
I find it fascinating. <laughs> All right, let me do another sponsor this week. Um, you know, this is something that's happening more and more. Of we get graphic novel uh, uh, supplements or sequels or alternative history to um, to you know regular sort of prose books, and this mm-hmm. one is Wires and Nerve. Um, by Marissa Mayer, and it's her first graphic novel, and it's extending the world of the Lunar Chronicle. So, you know, some of you may know this as better as Cinder, Crest, Scarlet Winter, and the rest of the Rampion crew. Um, it's a <laughs> brand new action-packed story about Ico, the android with a heart of mechanized gold. Um, <laughs> so when a rogue pack of wolf hybrid soldiers threaten the tenuous peace between Earth and Luna, Aiko takes upon herself to hunt down the soldier's leader. She is soon working with a handsome royal guard, of course, who forces her to question everything she knows about love, loyalty, and her own family, and has appearances by Cinder, Crest, Scarlet, and Winter. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. I don't think, I don't know that um, it's, I'm, I don't know this series well enough to say that it extends, but it's it's silly. Like it's almost like Rogue One to Star Wars. Like it's filling in some other piece, some other part of the world. Who for people who love this story want to get into it in a different way um, is really interesting. Again, it's called Wires and Nerve. It's her first graphic novel. Uh, it's available uh, wherever you can go buy books. So go check out Wires and Nerve. I, I have to say, I thumb through it, and it's really beautiful. The, it's a really beautiful um, color palette and uh, graphically done. So go check that out. Maybe someone um, that likes graphic novels, you can introduce them to this series this way. That series has sold a billion copies, really successful and good for um, Marissa Meyer and the whole crew over there. So it's wires and nerve available now. Uh, you know what? Let's, ex- let's talk about extending uh, universes. Um, the new <sighs> George R. R. Martin game of Thrones short story, uh, ironically, possibly timed, uh, we just talked about how he said maybe I think probably 2017 will be the year of the of the next uh, full installment. Sure, um, sure. Uh, you're you're <laughs> you're an unbeliever. I can tell already. I'm so mad. <laughs> I, I, I don't know this about you. You're a Game of Thrones uh, lady. Have you read the books? I tried. I got to book three and okay. then I stopped. And this was years ago. And was like, okay, I'll I'll pick up book four when Winds of Winter comes out because then I won't get too far. Ahead, you know, I won't get too far ahead. And that was, I mean, years ago. And like, I'm still. Yeah, that was like just... in the Carter administration, right? That when that was. Seriously, up. and now, and now the show is passing Winds of Winter, and like, yeah. what's the point? And I'm, I don't want to watch the show until the book is out. And like, because oh, of just... Neil's Razor. I know. It's right. Just it's so obnoxious, and I, you know, I'm not the person who feels like artists owe me. Sure. Whatever, and he can take his time. Fine, but could you like, if you're going to do all this writing, could you like write the book and not all this yeah. other stuff? Well, apparently, this is something he wrote earlier. Like the, that's why the timing is auspicious because it's he just made this thing and now there's, like, there's this other short story about what's going on there. So I, it sounds like it came from some other sh- offshoot of something he was working on, um, but there's a new short story coming out. I I was thinking about some got some follow up about um when Rebecca and I were talking about, you know, what to make of this and people were like, nah, that most of the, the feedback we got is we don't believe him um yeah. at all. Which is I mean, look, that is fair. If a past performance is any indication of future performance, then certainly you would be wise to bet on it not coming out. I just wonder this isn't unlike any other intellectual property franchise I've ever heard of, even in historical terms, of how much the franchise seems to have gotten away from him, both in terms of that the series is now, I guess he consults on it, and maybe he gave them some outline where it's go, but it's it's taken on a life of its own. 
mm-hmm. but he himself doesn't seem to be able to corral whatever he wants to do into into putting it out. I, I feel bad for him at this point. Like, uh, I mean, again, I'm never going to feel bad for someone who's making bajillions of dollars in that kind of way, but in sort of an artistic way, the internet and the TV show, which maybe it was not wise for him to sign off to let it be done when the books weren't out, and he he historically has trouble getting them out in anything like a timely fashion. Like the joke now is like Book Riot is younger than the mm-hmm. last Song of Ice and Fire book. It weren't. I mean, we're gonna we're in five and a half years old now. Um, so anyway, I, it's tough. It, it's a tough situation, and I, I hope that it gets resolved because I'd like to read the books. Uh, I can't watch the show because the older I get and with kids and whatever now, I think you and I have talked, the violence on TV stuff I really have yeah. trouble with. So for some reason, reading it seems a little more interesting. You know, that's more palatable somehow. I don't know what that is about either. Um, but this is a cultural phenomenon I've, I've missed the boat on. Um, and I said the similar thing, like I'll get started, you know, maybe when the penultimate book out, that's a, that's mm-hmm. a, um, that's a loophole in O'Neill's Razor. I don't know if you know. But if the penultimate know. book is out, you can then read that one because then you're just waiting on the last one. You know, it's one thing mm-hmm. to wait on however many three the the Harry Potter mistake which uh, uh, generated O'Neill's Razor because I read four and like no, this is a disaster of waiting for three. <laughs> right. But if the penultimate one is released, then you are free. Um, you can, with good conscience and in full, the force of weight of O'Neill's Razor is behind you and going ahead and reading. Uh, the series if the penultimate one is published. So I need to wait on, I guess, this one and the next one because there's supposed to be seven. Uh, who knows? Yeah, I we'll don't see know. I, just, I don't even know whatever. at this point. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. Anyway, so let's let's go on here. Where do you want to go to next? We we got some stuff we haven't covered. Where you, why don't you pick the next one? I want to talk about this kid thing. Yeah. This, this you found this one. I hadn't seen yeah. this. Talk to me about this one. All right. So – there was there were three teenagers in Virginia, which is why I feel compelled no. to talk about this. Um, who vandalized a historic African American schoolhouse in Virginia with a bunch of swastikas in October? Um, they haven't been named, obviously, because they're they're minors. But they pled guilty, and their punishment or whatever word you want to use, their sentence is that the judge is requiring them to both visit the Holocaust Museum and read some books. So instead of going to jail or to what do you call jail for kids? Yeah, juvenile detention. Like juvenile juvie, detention, yeah. Juvie. Yeah, <laughs> instead of going to juvie, yeah. um, they uh, have homework, basically. So they have to write a book report each month from a list of books that the judge assigned them. Hmm. And the list consists of things like The Color Purple and The Kite Runner and Native Son. Um, the judge said she wanted the books to cover race and religion, gender and war, to illustrate oppression all over the world. Um and the kids' parents were apparently like so mortified by what they did that they're they already took them mm. to the Holocaust Museum like before the sentence was mm. handed down, before they knew that was what the sentence was gonna be. They like already took their kids. Hmm. Um which is like good job. Yeah, parenting. right. Good good parenting. Um Yeah. So I just I think that's so interesting to like assign <sighs> yeah. books instead of instead of prison time for for something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think both of you and I are probably along the same way, like of like Anything that's not prison probably seems like a better idea, especially yeah. for kids, right? Like, yeah, I'm not, for a kid, yeah. I'm not sort of a lock them away early kind of situation. And this is a disturbing incident for sure. We did a story a while back, I think it was Italy, um, that you could get your jail time reduced for reading books um, for adults. So if you know, I, I don't know if you had, I don't know how, it was one of our questions, like how do you, you have to do a book report? Like how does it work? Mm-hmm. You get your, little, uh, your book at 
passport out and they give you a stamp and you, instead of free pizza, you get uh, two years uh, taken off. I'm not really sure. It, it's a fascinating idea because, as they say, the idea of juvenile detention and juvenile corrections is rehabilitation, right? And one thing prisons are notoriously bad at is rehabilitation. You often mm-hmm. come out worse than you went in because of the situations and what kind of life station you come out the other side in. Um, it makes sense to me. I, it would be cool if it wasn't just a sort of one-off idiopathic, this particular judge um, yeah. decided. Like if there were some structure around certain kinds of juvenile crimes could have, I guess, an educational component, I guess, is really what this is, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the idea being that the fount of this particular crime is an ignorance of history. Yeah, well, apparently the kids, two of the kids were minorities, Oh, or interesting. No. What did she say? Uh, what can I tell you about them is that three of them were minorities, two of uh, them were white, which is math that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what that means, but whatever. Um, none of yeah. them knew the building was a school. They didn't know it was a historic property. So they didn't know that they were like drawing swastikas on an African-American schoolhouse, which is, you know, the, the optics right. of that are not great. Um, but I mean, with, you like, shouldn't draw swastikas in anywhere, anything, but yes, right. Sure. Yeah, yeah just, kids, yeah, right. especially in this, like, this is when this is in October, and still, you know, back in October, recently, like hate crimes are on the rise. the The normalization of Nazi symbols is a thing that's real, yeah, and I feel a, like yeah. teenage boys who were out, you know, graffitiing crap they saw in the news mm-hmm. that they don't necessarily understand. Yeah, should right. probably not go to jail. Like that seems kind of, I don't know. I mean, they're children. Like their <sighs> right. critical thinking parts of their brains are not fully developed. So, and, and I don't know. I mean. I don't, it doesn't say much Marching about the ages here. Marching through the Holocaust here. Museum was a good idea. Yeah, that seems like a good idea. Like, I don't remember, like, when did you, when were you aware of, like, the Holocaust and would you even know what a swastika really meant at 13? I'm not sure that I would have. I would get, I'm yes. just guessing, like, at what point, we have, at what point would you have known necessarily? Well, the Holocaust, one of the Holocaust museums is here in Richmond. And also so down by the in, Poe Museum, actually, isn't it? Yes, Yes, it is. weirdly. Yeah, and in middle school, we took a field trip to yeah. it. Um, and that, like is a memory that really stuck in my mm-hmm. mind because that was, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any real knowledge or understanding of what, of what that meant. Um, and a lot of the kids in my class were Jewish and we went to the, uh, what do you call it? The synagogue that's attached yes, to right. the, the Holocaust museum here. And some of them had relatives who had died and, and it was like all very emotional. And, um, so that's when I went mm-hmm. through it. If they didn't have that experience, then maybe they just had no context. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, again, it doesn't say the ages here. I don't think they're, yeah. we're, we're led to believe just they're teenagers, teenagers, which could be any number. Um, Cause I, I went to Germany when I was 15 and went to Dachau and saw the, mm. the camp there and indelible marked on me as, as, a, as almost anyone who goes would be. But before that, I'm not sure that the reality would have I would have known enough to even know what I was doing if I had, a, uh, you know, the intention or whatever these kids had to do. And again, like, as you said, the normalization, like I never, th- I never th- in a million years thought I would see as many swastikas in my daily consumption of, of life uh, as we see now. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing we know about social norms and social proof, especially with kids, is they pick up, you know, like it's like it becomes like slang. Um, it's something that becomes – uh, that's in, that's being trafficked uh, in the symbolism in the day, in the language of the day, and this, and horribly decontextualized. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the real move here is to say, all right, if you're going to write that sign, you got to learn about what's going on around this kind of hate and this kind of attitude and this kind of history. Seems fair to me. 
Um, yeah. I wonder what else, what other crimes could you uh, assign uh, reading to do reading for, for, for well, teenagers? Like nonviolent hate crimes seem to be right. particularly appropriate for that. I mean, like, violent hate crimes, you should go to prison, yeah. you know, obviously. But um, I can't, I don't know, I mean, like, if you rob a bank, are you going to read a book about... <laughs> yeah, I get, if you, I, I'm trying to think of what are the sort of the petty crimes of teenagers, you know, like... Uh, Buying, drinking beer, MIPs, stuff like that. I'm not sure what book would really help you with that necessarily. Um, also, I, I, the idea, too, that the judge has that this kind of work might actually work mm-hmm. is interesting. You know, that, that literature and reading can have a ameliorative effect on people is one of those ideas I know that we often write around or are – I'm not sure we don't believe a book right necessarily, but we're careful to say – reading isn't magic, right? It's just, if you just mm-hmm. read something like, you know, it's not like antibiotics for the soul or something like this. <laughs> you can still be a bigot. You can still <laughs> be a, a bigot. So that's also, again, not that going to jail is great either for making you, uh, um, to, for rehabilitating you, but that also correlation of the, the expectation here is that if you read this particular set of books, there will be some outcome in your moral fiber mm-hmm. is a complicated and tr- problematic one. I'm not, it, but it might be the best of all bad choices in this particular case. I also feel like it's different for kids, though. Like, yes, what yeah. a kid reads in the, those like very formative sort of years matters <laughs> to who they grow up to be. So, well, and both both you and I just said that we had impression, uh, very, you know, very strong experiences mm-hmm. going to Holocaust museums. So clearly, there. It's not, I'm not saying that there's no connection between reading and education and outcomes of how you actually turn out. It's just read these, like turning book reading into like the very codified prescription of like six months, eight months, nine months in jail. Um, It doesn't line up in quite the same ways, although I'm still for it. It's just, there's all the different questions that come up. If you use it as reading as punishments, a weird one, right? I don't Mm -hmm. know about that. Um, Anyway, an interesting story, really interesting. I've never seen anything like this um, that people were, prescribed or I guess sentenced to sentences. Sentence. Um, I, I was waiting the whole time <laughs> to get out that. Yeah, I see what get there. Uh, let's see. Did we get through all of them? Oh, no. We got the big one. This was going to lead this, the whole show. What? what? Hillary. Oh, HRC. HRC. Yeah. Um, uh, announced last week that um, Hillary Clinton will have – Hillary Rodham Clinton will publish a book of personal essays – which is going to come out in the fall of 2017 from Simon & Schuster, stories from Clinton's life, um, stuff about the 2016 presidential um, election, and also a collection of inspirational quotations, their own commonplace book, I guess we'll get in there. (laughs) Um, So anyway, uh, there you go. Uh, No, good, right? I mean, I'm interested to see what she has here. Sure. Striking while the iron is warm, I suppose. Um, She's kept a relatively low-profile in the days since the election. Like, have you seen some of those, like, random Instagram encounters of, like, seeing yeah. her hiking and stuff like that? Have you seen those? Yeah. She's, like, um, out walking her dog she's in the out, woods. She's out uh, Cheryl Strading it or something out there. Mm-hmm. But um, President CEO of Simon Schuster, Carolyn Reedy, brought world rights in all formats. Do you think this has anything to do with that other guy? Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. I do. I'm. Sh- well, I'm not sure. But it feels like a, a calculated... Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, yeah. I was surprised that she went with Simon and Schuster, but do you think she knows? I'm sh- well. I don't know. 
Michelle was I mean, urging me to author. write an, Michelle has been urging me to write an open letter to her on the site about oh. SNS and what they <laughs> BTW um, white supremacist I don't I don't know I mean she's mm-hmm. an author so she's not unfamiliar with how with like publishing news I'm sure but that's I just such don't a, know how like, plugged in she is yeah inside baseball kind of story yeah um, that Simon and Schuster is publishing a white right. supremacist so I don't, I don't yeah she it's... might not care I mean she might be so out of she probably has blocked the word Breitbart on her Facebook feed, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'm not sure how she's getting her news. Like, what would it take for that to bubble up into her whatever mm-hmm. um, enclave of, of information gathering is right now? Like, I don't, I don't even know. I've There's a uh, – my sister-in-law is from a small town in Kansas that they have a museum of also-rans. Like, if you lose the presidential <laughs> election, they, like, you get the museum and exhibit or whatever. And the, I've always been sort of fascinated in the future history or the, especially the immediate aftermath of someone who lost a presidential election because mm-hmm. you have all this apparatus around you, right? Right through – basically the election is called and then it's over and it's like – you know, you see like John Kerry walking around with his dog and his yeah. ASICs you know, and stuff like this. And I just don't know what then your the pattern of your life becomes. Like is there – does she have – a body man or body woman like she surely once had. Does she have secret service? Does she have the whole staff? Like how much is left? Well, she she... still has secret service because she's the former first lady. Right, right, right. And that's an additional complication, right, is that you've got multiple layers of um, protection and uh, political history behind you. But like is she reading the Huffington Post to see the news and what is she seeing necessarily? Is her agent telling her anything? I'm just – it's impossible to know. Um, but it's a little too, let's say, it followed hard upon, to use the Shakespearean, the uh, other guy's announcement for SNS to go out and grab this. Um, probably didn't hurt the the bidding uh, for Hillary that uh, one particular party may have had incentive to, to, to do this. Um, but that's coming out in the fall, Book of Essays. It'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, I guess it's a little quick, I guess. Usually is, these take a little longer. But it's also not a big sort of my life kind of book thing. It's a collection of essays, so it can be yeah, it's not a memoir. and discreet um, in that particular way. Well, I think that's our show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks to our sponsors, Wires and Nerve by Marissa Meyer. Thanks to Madison Reed, Madison-Reed, R-E-E-D.com. Use offer code or go slash book right there. And Casper Mattresses, C-A-S-P-E-R dot com slash book riot. And then you go to the yeah, that URL and then use offer code book riot, one word, to get 50 bucks off a better mattress, a better sleep, and a better life. That's a transitive property I'm using there um, a little bit. Amanda, thanks for being on the show. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.